0: For our time together this evening, it is wonderful to give you praise and to sing from the joy in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we look at it, may you help us to understand it better. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. If you have your outlines, we are on Roman numeral 4, letter F, which is entitled Instruction Concerning Defilement. In the Harmony of the Gospels, it is paragraph 77, and it is on page 92. And it covers... We're looking in in your Bibles, if you don't have the harmonies, we're looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, Matthew 15, John chapter 7. Now, in the previous section, section 76, which covered John chapter 6... It was in that chapter that we saw that many of Yeshua's disciples turned from him and would not follow him any longer. Remember, Yeshua had more disciples than the twelve, and a large number of them leave him because of the hard sayings that he shared in chapter 6, recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 6. It says in verse 60, Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And then in verse 66 in John chapter 6, it says, Upon this many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And so Yeshua then said to the twelve, are you going to go away also? Simon Peter, who stands up as the spokesperson for the disciples, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And he mentions, we have believed and we know that you are the Holy One of God. And while they exercise faith in him and trust in his words, when we look at verse 70, it says, Yeshua then tells us that even among those he chose, one of them was a devil. And he spoke of Judas, and here's where Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, is first introduced to us as the betrayer in verse 71. Now, in section 77, the training of the 12 continues, and here with respect to his instructions concerning defilement. After this discourse on the bread of life, where Yeshua says, I am the bread of life, unless you fully embrace me, digest me, accept me, unless you see me as all-encompassing for you, then you are not worthy of me. And so many of his disciples no longer follow him. In Mark, verse 1, it says, And there are gathered together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which had come up from Jerusalem. So this is a 3 days journey from Jerusalem to Galilee. They've come particularly to entrap him. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 7, and after these things, that is, after these hard sayings of Yeshua, it says that he would no longer walk openly in Judea. He walked openly in Galilee, but not in Judea because the Jewish leadership was intent on killing him. Verse 1 of John chapter 7. So they travel three days north because Yeshua is not traveling south. And they want to entrap him and ultimately destroy him. Now, in this section, what we find is Mark gives us a more fuller account because he's writing to the Romans particularly. And what is being described here is a very Jewish event. So if you look at Matthew's account, chapter 15, his account is much shorter because his readers know the issues regarding the washing of hands. Yeshua here is going to speak out in rejecting the views of, of the Jewish leadership. He's already done this in the past. And so we've seen, number one, he has spoken out against their tradition. He will do this again here. If you look at Mark's account, verse five, he says, why or the Pharisees ask him, why do why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? In Matthew's account, chapter 15, verse 6, he says that the Jewish leaders were making void the word of God because of their tradition. So he's already spoken out against their tradition. He does it again here. He has spoken uh, out against the frequent fasting that the Jewish tradition insisted upon and commanded. They have accused him of being demonized. And they have accused him of being a sinner because he rejected the mishnaic law or the tradition of the elders. They're not calling him a sinner because he has failed to obey the law of Moses. That we know he has fulfilled completely. And in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But what he does not mind not fulfilling is that of the Mishnaic law, the tradition of the elders, or the laws as interpreted by the Jewish leadership of his day. At the trial, the Jewish leaders are going to raise a further issue. Not only has he failed to respect the tradition of the elders and spoken out against their understanding of the law, but then they're also going to raise, and not only have they already uh, accused him of being demonized, that's the uh, important moment, Matthew 12, when the nation of Israel rejects Messiah by virtue of the Jewish leadership's accusing Messiah, of having performed his miracles by the power of a demon. And not just any demon, but by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebub. That's the reason they're giving for the exceptional miracles that he's performing. Because he's doing his works by the power of the prince of demons, who is none other than Beelzebub. A further issue they're going to raise at the trial is that he claims to be the son of God. And in claiming to be the Son of God, they say he is blaspheming and therefore worthy of death. Here, the issue is that of being clean, the issue of clean and defilement. Mark gives the details because he's writing to Gentiles. Matthew's writing for Jews, so he doesn't have to provide the details. If you look at Mark's account, verse 2, it says that some of his disciples ate their bread with defiled... That is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands diligently, eat not. Holding, the tradi- holding to the tradition of the elders. So there's nothing in the Mosaic Law about this. this. Is the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, except they wash themselves, Mark is explaining these traditions to his readers because they're Gentiles. And he expects that they probably don't understand this. So he's saying, with regard to the Jews, when they come from the marketplace, except they wash themselves, they don't eat. And many other things there be which they have received to hold washing of cups and pots and all kinds of vessels. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask, why do your disciples not wash and be obedient according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with defiled hands? Remember that the issue is not the Mosaic law, but the Mishnaic law. And remember that by the first century, the Mishnahic law was held as equal to, and in some cases superior to, the Mosaic law. It was held to be superior because it was seen as the instructions in order to obey the Mosaic law. So what's more important, the board game or the instructions? Well, if you don't have the instructions, you can't play the game. And so according to the rabbis, the instructions are more important than the game itself. By the way, that very analogy was presented to me when years ago I was in Newark Airport and we were handing out literature, handing out tracts and a group of Orthodox Jews had come off the plane and there I was handing out those tracts. And when the conversation got around to the issue of the, uh, f- the tradition of the Jewish people and the laws as interpreted by the rabbis They made that analogy to me They said how can you play the game of monopoly if you don't have the instructions to the game So how can you be expected to obey the law if you don't have the instructions to the law And so therefore they argued the oral law or the instructions to the law The Mishnaic law was necessary in order to obey the written law but Yeshua is taking issue with that very understanding. In Mark, verse 5, the biblical name for the Mishnah is called the tradition of the elders. And note, the accusation is not that Yeshua breaks the law, but that he's breaking the Mishnaic law. According to Yeshua, breaking the Mishnaic law, he has no qualms with that. In fact, sometimes he goes out of his way to break the Mishnaic laws. And Messiah responds by pointing out three things. First of all, in verse 6 and 7, he says the true nature of the, he evaluates the true nature of the Mishnahic law, and he concludes regarding its hypocrisy. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That's why he speaks of them as hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines, the precepts, of men. We often think of worship as singing and praising God, but it also involves obedience to the laws or sayings of God. And thus, if we don't obey the law of God, and we think that we are um, permitted not to obey the law of God when it is in conflict with the Mishnahic law, Yeshua says that's hypocrisy. In verse 8, we're told you leave the commandment of God and you hold fast the tradition of men. Sometimes to keep the traditions of men, they are forced to ignore the divine commandment, he says in verse 8. In verse 9, he says in Mark's account, he said that to them, full well do you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. See, over and over again, it's the tradition, the tradition of men, the tradition of the elders. It's the Mishnahic law that he is arguing against, which the Jewish leaders were holding up to as equal to or superior to the Mosaic law. And in verse 9, he says, actions regarding God's commandment, sometimes, he says, to keep the traditions... It forces one to disobey the divine commandment. And Yeshua in verses 10, 11, and 12 of Mark, he presents an example of this. And it's called called the Korban in verse 11. He says, If a man shall say to his father or his mother that wherewith thou mightest have been profited by me as Korban, that is to say given to God, You no longer suffer him to do ought for his father or mother, to do what he should do for his father or mother, making void the word of God, here it is again, by your tradition. Korban is a rabbinic Hebrew term, and it means something that is dedicated, something that is given. So according to the tradition of the elders according to Pharisaic law at any point a Pharisee could wave his hand and say korban in which he meant that everything he owned at that particular point in time has been dedicated and as such he could do one of two things with it he could sell part of it and or all of it and donate that part to the temple treasury or he could use it for his own private use What he could not do was to then give it away for someone else's private use. So what would happen oftentimes is many of the Pharisees existed, but this did not mean that their entire families were Pharisees or that their parents were Pharisees. And there was a reluctance among the Pharisees to share what they had with those who were non-Pharisees. That is oftentimes the case, in, in, even in our day and age, among the Orthodox community. And so if a Pharisee did not want to share his resources with his parents because they were not Pharisees, he could just pronounce the term korban, dedicate all of his resources to the temple, or declare them to be dedicated, and therefore would no longer be um, held liable for the commandment to honor your father and mother. Because to honor your father and mother meant that you had to take care of their needs, particularly when they were financially, physically, or mentally incapacitated. But if you as a Pharisee knew that your parents were not Pharisees, they did not share your same religious convictions, and you, for whatever reason, did not want to take care of them, all you had to do was to pronounce the word korban, and thus they could not expect or they uh, could they could not force you to share your resources with them. And so Yeshua was saying this tradition dishonors God. Because it is a means by which you could get around obeying the divine commandment to honor your father and mother. So the term Korban would then, that declaration would prohibit the Pharisee from giving any of his assets to help his parents. He could then use all or part of it for himself. And by this means, the divine commandment was broken by their, or disobeyed by their tradition. In verse 14, he then calls to him the multitudes and he says unto them, hear me all of you and understand and understand there is nothing from without the man that goes into him that defiles him. But the things which proceed out of the man are those that defile the man. And when he was entered into the house from the multitude, his disciples asked him of the parable. What does this mean? Again, notice when Yeshua speaks to the multitude, he speaks in parables. This he's doing because he's been rejected as the Messiah. And thus his teachings are no longer to convince people he's the Messiah, but rather to train up and teach his disciples. Or he speaks parabolically so that the Jewish masses would not understand. When that happens, what occurs are his disciples then ask him what he means by the parable he just uttered. And so in verse twelve of Matthew's account, Matthew fifteen, he then explains the parable to them. The disciple said, Knowest not, I think this is very interesting, didn't you know that you offended the Pharisees when they heard this saying? Obviously, Yeshua didn't care that he offended them. In fact, he was intending to offend them because of their hypocrisy. And so he explains to them three things. He said, number one, in verse 13, when he answered, he said, every plant which my father plants not shall be uprooted. So he says, first of all, the Pharisees are plants that God has not planted. Therefore, they will be uprooted. Second thing he tells us is found in verse 14. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both fall into the pit. Second thing he describes them as as blind guides. The Mishnaic law is a blind guide leading the blind into a pit. Away from the revelation of God and into man-made traditions that take one from God. And then thirdly he says in verse the end of 14, they both fall into a pit. And the pit which they will fall into is the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. That will come upon the entire nation of Israel. In um, Mark's account, verse 17, the text is more general in explanation. Just says that they asked him about the parable. But in Matthew's account, in verses 17 through 19, he becomes very specific and explains fully what he had intended by the parable. In verse 15, Peter now is the spokesperson. Again, as he was previously. And in verse 15, Peter answered and said, Declare unto us the parable. And Yeshua explains the parable. The question is, where does defilement really begin? But notice in verse 17, he begins by saying, You don't uh, perceive ye not that whatsoever goes into the mouth, passes into the belly, and is cast out. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come forth out of the heart, and they defile the man. So where does defilement really begin? According to Pharisaical interpretation, one is defiled when one violates the law. But according to Yeshua, defilement begins earlier, when the decision is made inside the heart. The inside defilement defilement is already there. Defilement begins in the heart and the action is merely the results of a defiled heart, not the defilement itself. For he says, for out of the heart comes forth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and railings. Now keep in mind, Peter asks the question, but he doesn't quite learn the lesson until the book of Acts in chapter 10 when he is sent to Cornelius and he's told to eat of the the animals that are on the sheet that he sees in the vision they're all unclean animals and the lord says rise up and eat and peter says no no no, i can't do that lord nothing i've never eaten anything that has been uh prohibited by the law but when the lord commands us to do something we are to do that and it's then that he learns um learns that lesson in mark's account verse 19 is an interesting statement because in that explanation, he says, he gives us this par, uh, parenthetical phrase. This he said, making all meats clean. Part of Yeshua's mission would be to bring the Mosaic Law as a rule of life to an end. And as a result, the Mosaic Law will no longer be a rule of life for the believer. And that's why he says he declares all meats clean clean. And thus one of Messiah's ministries will be to fulfill the law. And when he fulfills it, he concludes it and he brings it to an end as a rule of life. That's not to say that we cannot learn truths from it. Or that we don't, in the law, are contain prophecies of the Messiah. In the law, contain promises that are made to Israel. In the law, are moral standards that we can learn from. But as a rule of life, it ends with Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection and his completed ministry. Paul makes the same point, by the way, in Romans chapter 10. Messiah is the end of the law. And thus, he brings the law as a way of life to its conclusion. The Mosaic law was not meant to be eternal. It wasn't meant to be forever. It was only for a point in time. And that point in time started with Moses. didn't exist before with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Twelve. It begins with the Exodus, and it concludes with the finished work of Messiah who is the one who fulfills the law and the one who completes the law and brings it to a conclusion as a way of life. Mark, verse 19, points this out. In paragraph 78, we have his withdrawal into Gentile territory, into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Mark's account, verse 7, says, "...and from thence he arose..." Uh, Verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. And from there he arose and went away into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. Matthew's account, chapter 15, verse 21 says, he then went into the parts of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are located today in what is present day Lebanon. And that region known as Lebanon has always been part of the promised land or at least part of the land promised to Israel, although it's not always been within the borders of the land of Israel. But it is part of the land promised to the Jewish people, both to Abraham as well as uh, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and the reiteration of the borders of the land. In the first century, even as it is today, it was Gentile territory. Elijah was sent to the woman of Zarephath to... Uh, who resided in this area. Yeshua's reputation is growing so pervasively that it is spread into the land, uh, out beyond the land into Gentile territory, up into the region of Tyre and Sidon. In Mark's account, verse 24, and, and Matthew, verse 21 of chapter 15, he, uh, he travels into that region. And in Mark's account, verse 25, it says, he could not be hid. As much as he tried to keep his presence low key, many knew he was there. And in verse 20 uh, in, in verse 26, Matthew tell, uh, excuse me, Mark tells us that there was a woman who was a Syrophoenician woman. In Matthew's account, Matthew verse. Uh, 21, 22, we're told that uh, in Matthew's account, verse 22, we're told that she was a canaanite woman. And so the apparent contradiction is cleared up when one realizes that there were different divisions and tribes among the Canaanites. We know of 10 different divisions. Among those different di- divisions were the Phoenicians. And thus Mark is using a more specific Term A more particular term, Syrophoenician, Matthew is using a more general term when he refers to her as Canaanite. In Matthew chapter 22, because the woman's daughter had been demonized, she comes, that is, the the mother comes to Yeshua for intervention. Behold, a Canaanite woman came out from those borders and cried, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. The reason he doesn't answer her is because she came to him on the basis of his messianic character. She says, son of David. But because his messianic character is limited to Israel at this stage, and that character has been rejected by Israel, he will not respond to helping others or performing miracles on the basis of his messianic character. For that messianic character was rejected back in paragraph 61 with the unpardonable sin. So anything, anyone that comes to Yeshua on that basis, he doesn't respond to. He's only going to respond on the basis of personal need and where there is the manifestation of faith. So in verse 24... When Messiah first doesn't respond, in verse 24, she kept pressing him. And so in verse 24, she cried out further. And Yeshua says, I was not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She was asking for a miracle on the basis of his messianic character, but his Messiahship was only for Israel. At this point, that's why he sent his disciples out and tells them not to go to the Gentiles, not to go to the Samaritans, but to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It will be at the end of his earthly ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, that he will say, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news. It's only in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we recite it here every Sunday, where he will say, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But right now, they are to be his witnesses solely to Israel. That doesn't mean that God, that Yeshua doesn't help those who are gentiles we've already seen him do that but he will not help them or anyone on the basis of his messianic character because that character was rejected by the jewish people and that's why he is resisting her at this point but while he's resisting her it's almost as if he's teasing her to address him differently so that he can respond And so she changes her plea. Rather than to plea on the basis of his messianic claims, she she, uh, appeals to him on the basis of her personal need in verse 25. Then finally she says, as she came and she worshipped him and said, Lord, help me. Now on the basis of personal need, now on the basis of his lordship rather than his messiahship, he's responsive. But in verse 26, he wants to make sure she has learned this lesson. So he says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread, that of course is Israel, and cast it to the dogs, Gentiles. In the covenantal respect of things, it is not right to give what God intended for the Jewish people, for Israel, in his promises to her, and to give those things away to the Gentiles, which he did not promise to her. But notice the the, Lord, the woman's response, verse 27. She says, Yea, Lord. She knows this is true. She says, I understand that. But even the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. In other words, she's not asking for that which is rightly intended for Israel. She's only asking for that which is intended to be extended to the Gentiles. Because as, Abraham, as God said to Abraham... In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So now, the woman is showing she does understand what Messiah has been teaching. She's not looking to take what God had promised to Messiah or from Messiah to Israel, but only what is then intended to be given to the Gentiles as well. She's not asking for the land. She's not asking for the promises that relate to Israel. She's asking that, The Lord might help her, which certainly is indicated uh, in the promises to the Gentiles. Well, let's take a look at that. In Mark's account, it says, From there he arose, went away. He entered into a house. He, he he preferred that no one know of it. He could not be hid because his reputation has spread. They know he's there. But immediately that he enters this house, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, having heard of him, came and fell down at his feet. So it's not her home, but he's in this home and she comes... And she made her way to him. So he's not busy with people. He's there. He's, he's kind like appe- That's what it appears to me. Don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It like he went to hide in the house. Right. Just to get away. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and maybe to instruct his disciples. Maybe he had a lesson planned. We don't know all of his intentions because both Mark's account. Of course, Mark isn't one of the twelve, right? But Mark is Peter's amanuensis or Peter's secretary. So Mark's account is really Peter's. So Peter is there and Peter and Matthew are there. And so they choose to write about this event. Not about what Yeshua intended to do if he told them when they gathered in the house. I think he's making a point to his disciples because he's in Gentile territory. And he's teaching, he's preparing the disciples for the ministry they're going to carry on. And they need to understand that just as the Jewish nation is rejecting him on the base of his messianic claims, they're going to spread abroad that he's the Messiah. And I think he's preparing them for that rejection they're going to experience as well, although there'll be some moments of response. And certainly there's going to be response among the Gentiles, which is what we're going to get to. Peter's going to have a critical point in seeing come to pass. Oh, I do. I do think that he is making a theological truth, but Yeshua is compassionate. He wants to heal. He's not trying to not heal, but if he's going to heal, it must be in the context in which he can. Maybe, but not on the basis of his messiahship because he's resisting her. He is consistent with that. No. no. Yes, and th- and that's a change. Earlier, before the rejection of Messiah, he just heals people because he's demonstrating he's the Messiah. Once he's rejected. Now he doesn't do miracles like that anymore. Now it's on the basis of personal need and the result of the exhibiting of that individual's faith. Okay, so let's, let's complete this thing and take a look a little further. So she said, I'm not asking for what belo- rightfully belongs to Israel. I'm asking for what rightly extends to the Gentiles. And while the Israel has rejected Messiah... Um, that doesn 't mean that there is an opportunity for some Jews and many Gentiles to benefit from it, and so Yeshua sees that and he 's impressed now the word for dog here in the Greek is the, is a word that means puppies it doesn 't mean a word denoting Um, It's a word denoting young dogs that stay in the house and eat the food that falls off the table, not mangy dogs that are out there eating the garbage from the trash. So the term is not meant to be a negative um, uh, put down of Gentiles. It's a contrast between what is rightfully Israel's and what is not rightfully the Gentile's. What is rightfully Israel's is what's given to them, and what is extended from them to Gentiles. So he's using the analogy as he's sitting in the home, or at least she's making the analogy as they're sitting in the home. That you know what's rightfully belongs to the Gentiles falls off the table of the Jews that they don't accept. And so it's not meant to say that you know when he's when um, she speaks of dogs, or, or when Messiah speaks of dogs that he's thinking of um, uh, something wicked, evil, or negative. But in verse 28, Then Yeshua answered and said unto her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. She just needed to understand more, but her faith in Messiah was truly deep and real and uh, um, and actual. So in verse 28... She asked on the basis of personal need, has demonstrated faith, which uh, Yeshua affirms in verse 28. And then in verse uh, 30 of Matthew's account, she went away from her house and found remember, the daughter's not with her. And she found the child laid upon the bed, and the demon had gone out from her. So, kind of a a neat thing. uh, Paragraph 79. In paragraph 79, uh, Yeshua again is in Gentile territory. This time we read in Mark's account, chapter 7, verse 31. And again, he went out from the borders of Tyre, came through Sidon into the Sea of Galilee. So he passes through the land of Israel, through the midst of the borders into Decapolis. Decapolis is the ten-city region, which uh, was so named because of ten Gentile cities that were uh, established in the north eastern region from the sea of galilee and they had small jewish populations the people then bring an individual to yeshua who is deaf and had an impediment of speech look at verse 32 of mark and they brung unto him one that was deaf had an impediment in his speech and they're asking for healing they beseech him to lay his hands upon him and notice what happens Um, He takes the individual aside. And um, his method of healing is unique. But notice verse 33. he He does not perform the miracle for the benefit of the public. Publicly, he's been rejected. Yeshua takes the individual aside from the multitude. And he is ministering to him privately and personally. Again, the result of him being rejected. And his method of healing is unique. Look what he does first, Mark's account. First of all, he puts his fingers in the man's ears, evidently to deal with his deafness. And then he spits, I guess, on his hand and touched the man's tongue. And that, evidently, to deal with his muteness. And then he looks up to the Father. Thirdly, he looked up to heaven. And he sighed, and he said unto him that his uh, Ephata that is, be opened. And um, he looks up to the Father for the healing to occur. And fourthly, his ears were opened, and the bond of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke painly, plainly. And he charged them that they should tell no one. Look at verse 36. The new policy is enforced, as we saw earlier. They're not to tell anyone. But what we find out is that they can't help but tell people. Verse 31, it says that the more, more, but the more he charged them, so much the more, great deal, they published it and let people know. If you look at Matthew's account, verse 30, it says, a great multitude came to him along with this man. And they were lame and blind and dumb and maimed and many others, and they cast them out. Verse thirty-one: They glorified the God of Israel. So the healing is turning people to God as well in worship of Him. In verse, uh, as we go further, we find that the multitude is following him. Mark chapter eight, verse one, and in verse two he says, "I have compassion on the multitude." Because they continue with me now three days and they've not had anything to eat. Verse 32 of Matthew's account says, They continue with me now three days, they have nothing to eat. So as news spread that Yeshua is back in the area of Decapolis, this is the area where the individual that had the legion of demons was was healed, multitudes now are following him. Earlier, we saw 5,000 followed him. That was a Jewish audience. Here, we find 4,000 follow him, which is predominantly, if not exclusively, a Gentile audience. With regard to the 5,000, they were in the land of Israel. With regard to the 4,000, they're outside the land of Israel among the Gentiles. In Mark, verse 9, we're told that here there are 4,000. In Matthew's account, verse 38, there are 4,000, but that only counts the men, not the women and children. So we don't know how many more there might be, but maybe there are at least ten 10,000 or more. And he enters into a conversation with the disciples because of the lessons they are to learn. In paragraph 80, after he multiplies the seven... Uh, he says, "And they, how many loaves do you have? The seven loaves and a few small fish." That's Matthew's account, verse thirty-four. Mark's account, verse five or six, same thing: seven loaves. And he broke the bread, and he multiplied the fish and loaves for the people to eat. In verse, in paragraph eighty, Mark eight verses ten to twelve, Matthew fifteen verse thirty-nine, going into chapter sixteen. He has this conversation with his disciples to teach them the lesson to see if they've learned the lesson of trust and reliance upon Messiah for their needs. In paragraph 80, Mark 8, Matthew 15, he experiences the rejection in Magadan. In Mark chapter 8, verse 10, it says that he entered into the parts of Dal- Dalmanutha, but in Matthew's account, verse 39, it says he's in the borders of Magadan. Dalmanutha was the port of Magadan. So if people say, oh, there's a contradiction, one says he was here in another place. Well, Dalmanutha was the port in the city of Magadan, which is on the Sea of Galilee. And if you look at Matthew's account, Chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came tempting him. Remember, they're after him. They want to kill him. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Mark's account, verse 11, says the same thing. A sign from heaven. Notice that because when Yeshua performed a sign or miracle before, the Pharisees and Sadducees assigned it to Beelzebub. So now they say, show us a sign not from Beelzebub, not a demonic sign, but show us a heavenly sign, a sign from heaven. But Yeshua is not going to be performing any more signs for them. As he indicated, paragraph 62, following 61, when he was rejected as Messiah, he said, no sign will be given to the nation except one, the sign of Jonah. And that's what he repeats here in Matthew's account in verse 4. The sign of Jonah is the sign of resurrection. And that's the only sign that will be given to the nation of Israel in light of Israel rejecting Messiah. And that sign of resurrection will occur on three occasions. One will be the resurrection of Lazarus. We'll look at that when we get to it. The other is the resurrection of Yeshua himself. And the third is the resurrection of two witnesses recorded in Revelation chapter 11. Notice also the focus on this generation. Look at Mark's account, verse 12. It says, why does this generation seek a sign? There shall be no sign given unto this generation. He's talking about the generation that is existing during the time of Messiah's ministry. And they will not be given any other signs of Yeshua's Messiahship except the sign of resurrection, which is given on three occasions. The resurrection of Lazarus, the resurrection of Messiah himself, and the resurrection of the witnesses recorded in Revelation 11, which will be given to Israel. Apart from those signs to Israel, Israel will experience the judgment that is set for 70 A.D. Paragraph 81 now, we, we are given this warning against rejection. Yeshua then warns the disciples against three types of leaven in this section. Leaven, when used symbolically, speaks of sin, but in Matthew's gospel, it is used of a particular sin. The particular sin that Matthew's gospel makes, uh, makes reference to is that of false teachings and false doctrines. So in Matthew's account, chapter 16, verse 6, he says, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the false teaching and the false doctrines of them, primarily embodied in the Mishnah, in the tradition of the elders. In Mark's account, verse 15, he's also going to add the false teachings of the Herodians. Each group had their own false teachings about the person of Messiah. The Pharisees said Yeshua was demon-possessed. And not just demon-possessed by any demon, but by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, which is why he can do the unique miracles he does, the Pharisees have said. The Sadducees, of course, spoke out against Yeshua in that they said, and we will see this more clearly later, that he was against the temple service. Did he not say that, destroy this temple, three days I will raise it up? He spoke of the destruction of the temple. Did he not overturn the money changers' tables in the temple so that individuals could purchase clean sacrifices for sacrificial service? The temple service, remember, was under the control of the Sadducees. And they saw him as a threat to their understanding of the temple and its services. So they said he's against the temple. And they will raise that issue up later. And the Herodians... They saw Yeshua as against Roman rule. The Jews in general were against Roman rule as such, but the Herodians were willing to accept Roman rule so long as it came through the house of Herod. And if Yeshua is claiming to be the Messiah, well then Herod is not the king of the Jews as he has been proclaimed. So all of these different... Jewish groups, Pharisees, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, had a false teaching and false doctrine about the person of Messiah. But as Yeshua is teaching them about their false teaching, the disciples misunderstand Yeshua. And they think he's referring to physical bread. Look at verse 7 of Matthew. They reason to themselves saying, we took no bread with us. They think they're talking about physical food. So he reminds them of the feeding of the four and five thousand. Do you not perceive, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand or the seven loaves of the four thousand? The point he's trying to teach the disciples is that they should not be concerned with the necessities of life. These things Messiah will provide. What they should be concerned about was the false teachings that were being spread about him by these different groups. And as they conduct their ministry about him in the book of Acts. They need to remember God will take care of their needs. Messiah will take care of their needs. They need to be on their game regarding the false teachings that will be circulating about Messiah so that they can respond to them appropriately. In in Mark's account, verse uh, 22, it says that, and they came into Bethsaida. This is one of the three cities... In the sea of around the Sea of Galilee in which he did the majority of his miracles and according to mark 's account they, they brought the people there brought to him a blind man and they besought him to touch him and as Mark records to us, we have a very unique miracle that messiah performs it 's the only miracle he performs in stages that 's recorded for us notice. What Yeshua does. Number one, the man is brought out of the village. Notice again the privacy issue. He took hold of the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village so that his miracle again is private. And it's limited to this man. It's not for the public uh, because he's not doing this to proclaim his Messiahship, but to meet this man's personal need and then on the basis of faith. Notice what he does. Number one, he first spits on the guy's eyes. He brought him out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes. And then secondly, he laid his hands upon him. Then he places his hands over his eyes. And then in verse 24, he asks the man how he saw. And the man says in verse 24, I behold, I see men, but I behold them as trees walking. His sight was blurry. It was partial. Things were blurry. Then he laid his hands on the man's eyes again. And this time he saw clearly and then he said unto him sent him away to his home and said don't even enter into the village so as to proclaim it again this is privately it's personally because they rejected him now I think we don't know why because it's not explained but the reason I think that he is healing in this stages is because he's trying to make an application of what he taught to the disciples in the same section he taught them that they were to rely upon him to meet their needs and to be on their game regarding the false teachings that were circulating about himself. And now what he wants to reveal to them is that his disciples, like this blind man, were only partially sighted because they understood who Messiah is, but they did not see clearly And they did not understand the program of his death and resurrection, which he's going to teach them next. So though they have partial sight, they still see very blurry. But in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God is now shed abroad in their hearts, and they are baptized by the Spirit and brought into what will then be called the church or the ecclesia, the called out ones then they will have full comprehension and full enlightenment by the Holy Spirit but for now they are only seeing blurrily as it were they're not understanding the full ramifications of Yeshua's teachings but one day they will and this is also similarly with regard to the nation of Israel as a whole because there's only a faithful remnant among Israel that is embracing what Messiah is teaching so in a way Israel is only seeing blurrily too We're only seeing partially as a nation. And that partial sight is only among the faithful remnant. But there's going to come a time when all Israel will see clearly. And they shall need no one to teach them, for they shall all know him from the least to the greatest. And as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved. It appears that that might be the lesson that Messiah is trying to clarify for them or bring to the fore even through this miracle. In paragraph 82, we see the partial sight of the disciples. In paragraph 83, we will see the partial blindness of the disciples. What time do we have? Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll keep going for a little bit. Paragraph 82 covers Mark 8, verse 27 through 30, Matthew 16, verse 13, and Luke chapter 9. Notice Mark's account, verse 27. They are in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Mark 27. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Yeshua went forth and his disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Matthew's account says in verse 13, Now when Yeshua came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, this was outside Jewish territory, Caesarea Philippi, is at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a mountain made up of three peaks. Its highest peak is at about 9,000 feet above sea level, the highest mountain in the Middle East. Mount Ararat is the highest mountain in Asia Minor, in what is today Turkey. And I don't know how tall that is. That's probably upwards of around 16,000 feet or so. Caesarea Philippi is an interesting place, and you can visit it today uh, if you go to tour in Israel. It is built, it's a unique place because it's built around a massive cliff rock. And its geography is important for what Yeshua is going to teach here. At the side of the cliff, in the first century, a river came through a cave. And that it actually came through up until the last century. In the last century, an earthquake had closed off the cave. And now the river flows out through a, a certain section off to the right of the cave. But in in the time of Messiah, it flowed right out of the cave itself. And as it flowed out out of the cave, the river broke down small stones. The river is called the Banyas, and it's one of the four sources of the Jordan River. And in paragraph 81, Yeshua warned His disciples against three types of leaven. Paragraph 82, He's going to test to see if His disciples understood the lesson of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, the Sadducees and the Herodians. Remember, they all had an opinion about who Yeshua was. The Pharisees said he was demon-possessed. The Sadducees said he was against the temple. The Herodians said he was against Rome. So Messiah is now going to ask the disciples, who do men say that I am, and then who do you say that I am? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians were saying many things about who Yeshua is. Now he wants to see if they've learned the lesson and learned who he truly is. So he asks two questions. Matthew verse 13, he says, Who do men say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? The disciples point out that there's no one opinion about who the people say that you are. We know what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Rodians say, but what do the common people say? Well, they point out, some say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say you are Elijah. They must have associated Yeshua with with Elijah because just as Elijah battled the false teachings and doctrines of the Baal prophets of Israel, so Yeshua is confronting the religious leaders of his day. Elijah confronted religious leaders of his day, They were Baal prophets. Messiah is confronting the religious leaders of his own day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Some say that you may be one of the prophets, Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. Because Jeremiah appealed to the people to no longer resist Babylon. Judgment is going to fall and accept it. Because that was Jeremiah's message to the people, the people saw him as a traitor. Yeshua's message is of a similar type. I've presented myself to you as the Messiah. You've rejected me as Messiah. Judgment's going to fall. You're going to need to respond and accept it. Others say that he was one of the prophets, but they do not specify particularly. But notice this. What is true about all of the common statements about Messiah, they notice something supernatural about him. But they fail to recognize who he himself claims to be. None of the people are affirming what Yeshua himself said he was. The Messiah of Israel. The Messianic King. They recognize there's something different and even supernatural. But none of them are saying he's the Messiah. So he asks them now the second question. But who do you say that I am? Now the Greek is very interesting because it's in the emphatic. In other words, it says, but you, who do you say that I am? Not merely, but who do you say that I am? But you, you guys, the folks that I've been ministering to for these uh, three years or so, who do you say? That's what I'm concerned with. And Peter responds on behalf of the group if you look at Matthew 16. Simon Peter answered and said, And Simon Peter's response is also in the emphatic in the Greek. In the English, it just says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But in the Greek, it says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So it's all very emphatic. In other words, Peter is a plus plus on this one. Yeshua then has something to say to Peter in Matthew 17. He says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, you have received divine illumination. That's why you know this. this has been re- you did not come to know this through mere intellectual reflection. This is something that God has revealed to you. And you have received it as divine illumination and not merely of intellectual assent. And then he says in verse 18 that, um, and I say unto you that you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Verse 18 this is the first time the word church is mentioned in the Gospels. Ecclesia means called out once. And in the Gospels, churches, the term church is only mentioned twice. And the two times it occurs is mentioned by the one writer, Matthew. He's the only one who uses the term. He uses it here, and he'll use it later, as we'll see. The reason why Matthew is the one who records it is because he is tracing the effects of the unpardonable sin referred to back in paragraph 61, the rejection of, as, of the rejection of Messiah Yeshua as Messiah by Israel. And because of that rejection, a new entity is going to be created. That's why Messiah gave the parables in Matthew 13 to show us this new kingdom program that is to come into existence, a mystery form of the kingdom. By mystery is meant not something secret, but something that had not been revealed before. That's what mystery means in the Greek. Something that has not been revealed before. It's brand new in terms of revelation from God. And there are a number of different mysteries. The rapture, for example, is a mystery that has not been revealed before. Or our transformation in a twinkling of an eye show you a mystery. Something not made known before is now being made known. And in Matthew 13, the parables of the mystery form of the kingdom is that the kingdom is going to take on a new manifestation that the scriptures have not talked about before. Here, Matthew gives us a little more clarity about that, or Yeshua does, as Matthew clarifies it for us. This new mystery form, this new manifestation of the kingdom of God is going to be known as called-out ones, known as congregations, or known as the church. People will be called out. Jew and Gentile will make up this new entity. He doesn't explain all this now, but it gets unfolded for us later. But the reason why Matthew records us records is because he's writing to Jews. And what he wants to help the Jewish people understand is the Messianic age, as the prophet spoke of it, is not what Messiah is inaugurating now. Why not? Because his Messiahship has been rejected. So what is he re- inaugurating? He's inaugurating a new mystery form of the kingdom. And here he tells us that Peter is going to be, or at least to Peter, he says, on this rock I'm going to build this new mystery form of the kingdom called the church. Now, what is he talking about? There's a lot of difference of opinion on this. Let me see if I can give you at least mine. In verse 18, Peter is, the word Peter in Greek is Petros. Now, the word Petros means a small stone like those in the river of the Banyas, that they can see before them. Little stones. He says, you are a small stone. You are Petras. And what's also important here is that the word Petras is a masculine, singular noun. But he says, but upon this rock, Petra, Now, the word Petra means a massive cliff rock. Now, the imagery is very clear because they see the small stones that the river flowing through the massive cliff has formed. So Yeshua can show this imagery and they can see it. You, Peter, are like one of these stones, but I'm going to build the church uh, on this massive cliff stone. So there's a distinction being made. The word Petra, interestingly enough, is a feminine singular noun. So we can't be referring to Peter. So what is Yeshua teaching? This is what I think he's teaching. He's saying, Peter, you're a small stone, but from the massive cliff rock I will build my church. The massive cliff rock that he's going to build the church on is the massive revelation that he was given regarding the person of Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, the Son of the, uh, the Son of God, the Living One. In other words, the massive rock is the confession of Messiah's of Yeshua's Messiahship. It's a massive confession because Israel as a nation has rejected it. And yet here this Petros is making a Petra kind of statement. He's acknowledging the full Messiahship, the full cliffness, rockness of Messiah. And thus his confession is a great statement. It is a rock-like statement. And it's on that acknowledgement that the church is built. In fact, um, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what one must believe in order to be a member of this church, of this ecclesia. We're to believe three things. That Messiah has died for our sins. That He was buried. And that on the third day, he rose again. That's what Paul tells us is the gospel. That is the grand confession we confess. Peter doesn't know those three things yet. But what he's confessing is the grand confession of the person of Messiah. And in the next paragraph, Yeshua is going to speak about how this is going to come about. And we have, whereas here we have partial sight on the part of Peter and the disciples... In the next paragraph, we have partial blindness on the part of Peter, as we're going to see in a minute. Adam, you raised your hand. Well, in the, okay, so now let's think about this. In the case of Peter, he's, he's already acknowledged Yeshua as Messiah. So he's among that faithful remnant. Now you're outside the land. We have a Gentile for whom the Messiahship of Yeshua is irrelevant because he's not coming to be established as the Messiah because of his rejectedness. In the case of Peter, it's different. He's Jewish. He's of the house of Israel, but he's of that faithful remnant. And thus the faithful remnant is making the this grand proclamation. Now all Peter is saying is acknowledging what he understands Yeshua, who he understands Yeshua to be. He's not looking for a miracle on that basis. He's all, he was asked the question, who are you? And Yeshua's understa- uh, Peter's understanding of Yeshua is extremely lofty. And so much so that Yeshua's response is, it is so lofty, it's of a divine origin. Right? What you've come to understand is what's been revealed to you. What the others were saying were things they could surmise. He's like John the Baptist. He's like Jeremiah. He's like Elijah. You can surmise that. But you can't surmise whether or not he is the son of the living God, the Messiah of Israel, unless that's revealed to you. And so he really... In other words, other Jews could acknowledge that. But that's not going to make... It's not going to change... The purpose for which he is now uh, embarked on. Does that make sense? Okay. So now let's look at... And by the way, in the Old Testament, the rock is one used symbolically. Oftentimes, I'm not sure if I could say every time, but oftentimes is a symbol of the Messiah. Now, Messiah says one other thing here. He goes on to say in Matthew 18 that... the. That the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That is, against the ecclesia that he will build. In the Old Testament, the phrase gates of Hades is a phrase that denotes physical death. And you can see this in a number of places. Psalm, uh, the ninth psalm, verse 13, the 107th psalm, verse 18, Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 17. I think Messiah's point is physical death will not destroy the ecclesia. That is to say Messiah's impending death and even the disciples own death or any followers of Messiah's death will not bring about the end or the demise of the ecclesia. In fact, history has borne out that the more the ecclesia has been persecuted, the more powerful it becomes and the larger It grows. In verse 19, he then says to Peter, I will give unto you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you will bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the kingdom program that Yeshua has taught includes now the ecclesia. The ecclesia is part of the kingdom program. Keys of the kingdom are are relevant to this mystery form of the kingdom, this ecclesia form of the kingdom, we might say. Keys are a symbol of authority. You see this in Isaiah chapter 22, to open or close something. Those aren't coyotes, are they? They are. Don't you think they're dogs? Come on, they got to be dogs yeah they, they sound something like that because where I am, boy, they they could be grizzly. okay. Evan, would you go out and check it and see if they're coyotes or not? Just, uh, just Just put your hand and your finger out there or whatever. No, no, don't do that. Okay. Um, so the kingdom pro- the, the is part of the kingdom program. Keys are a symbol of authority, and the keys will be used to open or close that which is relevant to the ecclesia form of the kingdom program. What I think Peter is being told is that, or what we're being told here, and Peter's being told, is that the purpose of these keys is to open the door for the different ethnic groups to enter into this kingdom, uh, this form of the kingdom. In the Old Testament, there are ultimately two ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles. In the New Testament period, there were three ethnic groups. The Jews, Gentiles, and the Samaritans. Peter will be the one responsible to open the door to this new kingdom program for these three ethnic groups. Once Peter opens the door to the ethnic group, the door to that group then stays open. The book of Acts is, in effect, the first half of the book of Acts... Is Peter's exercising of the keys of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, Peter opens the door for Jews to enter into the ecclesia program of the kingdom. So that when the disciples uh, are gathered in the upper room, the Spirit of God descends. They all begin to speak in languages they have not learned that is not interpreted but understood by those who hear. And then Peter stands up and he preaches and he explains what's going on and 3,000 Jewish people come to faith. He's opened the door to the ecclesia. He has the keys to the kingdom. That is the new mystery form of the kingdom, the ecclesia form of the kingdom. Peter is the catalyst for it to be opened up and the Spirit of God descends upon those and they are baptized by the Spirit of God. That means to be immersed by the Spirit of God. Another way to say it is to be identified with the ecclesia, the members of the body, and identified with Messiah himself. That's what the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is about. It ad- His work identifies us with Messiah. And that's why on Sundays I've been preaching about the union of of our being in messiah how are we how does that come about it comes about through the baptizing work of the holy spirit when he places us in messiah and when we are placed in messiah we are also made members of the body of messiah or members of the ecclesia members of the church so the baptizing work of the holy spirit places one in the body of messiah that's what the purpose of the baptizing work of the holy spirit is it is not for empowerment The filling of the Spirit is for empowerment. It is not evidenced by the speaking in tongues. It was in Acts 2, but that was a very unique uh, encounter for a particular purpose in presenting the gospel to the Jewish people who had gathered at Pentecost from all over the then-known world. And they all hear in their own languages. So it was an earthly language in Acts 2. And there's no interpretation. Because everyone hearing it understands it. Later, Paul, when he speaks about the gift of tongues, is going to to, uh, insist on three limitations that are attached to the exercise of the gift of tongues. It's the only gift that has limitations upon it. He says that when the gift is exercised, no more than three people at a time, and that they are to speak one at a time, they're not supposed to speak at the same time. He says, only three in an occurrence, only one at a time, and there must be an interpreter. It's the only gift that is dependent upon another gift for it to work. So how does that work? Well, this isn't about the gift of tongues. But let me just say, that means that whoever has a gift, the gift of tongues or gift of languages and is going to exercise them, he must know someone has the gift of interpretation, and that person's ready to interpret. In other words, it doesn't happen spontaneously. It happens in some organized fashion because then Peter's gonna, Paul's going to say in Corinthians, everything must be done decently and in order. So for a person to speak up and utilize the gift of tongues, not knowing if someone would interpret would be in violation of Paul's instructions because he told them not to unless someone speaks. Uh, unless someone interprets, so you ask well how 's he supposed to know that 's the whole point he has to know so it 's not just anyone stands up and then someone else stands up. This is what he says. There must be an organized use usage of these two gifts that 's my understanding of what Paul is saying. so I think in many of our Pentecostal and their brothers and sisters and allures i 'm not criticizing that, but in many of our Pentecostal and charismatic churches and fellowships they are not in my opinion exercising the gift of tongues in a proper way that's my opinion on it now so the notion of the baptizing work of the holy spirit being evidenced by tongues is not what the scriptures teach whatsoever as far as i understand it but what paul what yeshua is telling peter is he's the one who's going to be the catalyst to unlock the door that enables the three ethnic groups, Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, to enter into the body of Messiah, the Ecclesia. We see it in Acts 2 with regard to the Jews. Then later, in Acts chapter 8, Philip is sent to minister among the Samaritans as an evangelist. And he leads many Samaritans to faith. But it isn't until Peter joins them that they experience the baptizing work of the Spirit of God to place them into the body of Messiah and to be joined to Messiah himself. So if you look at Acts chapter 8, you'll see the same phenomena occurs. Peter must be on, in, on the scene in order for those Samaritans who have accepted Messiah to experience they're being placed into the body of Messiah by the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. That's the second place where he exercises or utilizes the keys of the kingdom to see that the Samaritans can be brought into the kingdom, this new mystery form of the kingdom as well. And then, interestingly enough, in Acts chapter 9, we read of Paul's own... um, Salvation experience, where he comes to know Yeshua as Messiah, and there we are told he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, but Paul was not given the keys or authority to open the door of the ecclesia to the Gentiles, so it's in Acts chapter ten, the next chapter, that Peter is sent to the house of Cornelius, where the door is open for the first time to the Gentiles. To enter into the ecclesia through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. And again, it's Peter who is the one who is exercising the keys of the kingdom. That is the keys to this mystery form of the kingdom. The keys to the church or the ecclesia form of the kingdom for Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. And that's the meaning of that phrase that Yeshua utters to Peter. Now in verse 19 he concludes this, and we'll we'll stop at this section. He then says, "Whatever you shall bind, will be bound, and whatever you loose will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose shall be loosed in heaven." Now this does not refer to a principle of spiritual warfare, where you hear people praying, "We bind this, we loose this, we do this, and we do that." This has absolutely nothing whatsoever. Although this is where it oftentimes is taken from. The phrase binding and loosing was a common term in the rabbinic writings. And they had specific meaning. The Hebrew word to bind could be used in a judicial or a legislative sense. When it was used in a judicial sense, to bind something meant to punish someone. When it was used in a legislative sense... The idea to bind something meant to forbid it. So, for example, you could talk about uh, swine being bound from our meals. As to say, it's forbidden. It's a legislative sense. If it was a judicial sense, such as in stoning or something like that, a person could be bound to be stoned. In other words, they would be punished by stoning. That's how the words were used. In a judicial sense, to bind something meant to punish something or someone. In a legislative sense, it meant to forbid something. On the other hand, the word to loose meant, in a judicial sense, not to punish something. It's another way of declaring somebody innocent, guiltless. You are loosed from this uh, uh, responsibility. You will not be punished for what you have done in other words and in a legislative sense it meant it was permitted if something was loosed it meant that you were permitted to do that so the very things that the pharisees claimed the authority to have to bind and loose to punish or uh, to forbid to uh, or to permit the very thing the Pharisees claimed the authority to have but did not have, Peter was given that authority by Messiah himself. Later, this privilege is given to all the apostles after Yeshua's resurrection. But Peter is given the authority to permit things that were formerly forbidden and to forbid things that may have formerly been permitted. We see this in the epistles where in their writings they're going to permit things that were not permitted before. For example, Peter, in the writings, those in this mystery form of the kingdom will be permitted to do things that the law previously forbid, such as to eat certain animals that were forbidden by the Mosaic law, are are now permitted by the New Testament legislation, which is written by Peter and the other apostles as examples. So they'll permit certain things that were formally prohibited. For example, Paul is going to say something like that uh, we can worship on whatever day we might choose. One man worships on this day, another person on that day. The Mosaic law did not permit that. The Mosaic law said you had to rest on the seventh day. But now what was formally prohibited? Uh, or well let's put it the other way. You were, to rest, you were not permitted to rest on the six days of the week, but you were permitted to rest on the seventh day. <clears throat> now the epistles p- are going to say, you are loosed from being bound to rest only on the seventh day. And you can rest on other days. <laughs> you know. So things are going to be changed. The Mosaic law is no longer in force as a way of life. That's the whole point. If it was, we're all breaking the law every day because we're not offering sacrifices in the temple. Now, we can argue about that and say, well, we're not offering sacrifices because there's no temple. But that does not exonerate us from the commandment to offer the sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. We're disobeying the law when we don't sacrifice or when we don't observe kosher or when we don't have tassels on our clothes. Or when we don't stone adulterers. That's also commanded by the law as an act of punishment. So if we don't punish the way the law tells us, we're breaking the law. Now we might legitimize it by saying, well, you know, we don't do those things today. Well, but that's not, that's the whole point. We're now breaking the law by our traditions or by our common law of what goes on. The point is that. To bind and loose it has nothing to do with spiritual warfare. It has to do with the authority Peter and the apostles are given to permit things that were in the law formally prohibited and to prohibit things that may have been formally permitted. In the, that's a legislative sense. In the judicial sense of the word... We see Peter doing this very thing in Acts chapter 5. You remember in Acts chapter 5, everybody held everything common. And Ananias and Sapphira, they say, we're going to give everything to the apostles to distribute. But then they hold back on their promise. It's Peter who says, you have not lied to men, but lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God, not to men, but to God. And as a result, they are judged. They were There's nothing in the Mosaic Law that says you can't uh, reconsider what you might have otherwise given. But here, Peter makes a judicial determination and the individuals under his watch as the head apostle are slain. The husband and wife are slain for their lack of following through on their promise. Now, no church... Had, and by the way, just as a side note, of course, they were slain in the spirit, which means they really were slain, right? They died, you know, that moment. So, but, and they they certainly did in the judi- judicial sense of the word. Oh, but let me say this: no congregation, no church has the authority to bind or loose in the legislative sense of the word. Today. No church can make up new rules and regulations beyond that which Scripture supports and permits. Now that the Word of God is complete, this is our guide and this is what we were directed. To do so would to do what the Pharisees themselves were doing, making up new traditions. So, you know, churches that say, Well, if you're really going to be a follower of Messiah, you're going to be a part of this body. You have to give up rock music. You know, that was back in the 70s. Or no smoking and no drinking and no dancing and things of that sort. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything like that. So the moment you start making up these rules, whether they're good or bad, is, has nothing to do with it, beneficial or not. They're not biblical rules. So what have we done? We've just, we've just um, replaced pharisaical traditionalism, legalism, with new quote-unquote church legalism and church pharisaicalism we've just replaced one tradition with another and we're which means we're behaving like the Pharisees and we have become legalistic and in essence we become liable to the charges that were made by Yeshua against the Pharisees of his day against us as well so um, So no church has authority to bind or loose in the legislative sense because the legislative sense has been determined by the apostles who did have that right as written in the letters. In a judicial sense, we have a limited authority to do that. So that later we're going to see in Matthew 18. If somebody has something against someone, they go to the individual. If it's not resolved, they bring a witness. If it's still not resolved, ah, now they bring it to the elders. And now the elders have a limited judicial role. And if the elders come up with a decision on the conflict and someone does not want to abide by that, by that determination, what can the elders do? They can excommunicate an individual from the body. They cannot execute the individual. But they can excommunicate the individual. So there's sort of a limited judicial authority. There can be judicial statements that bind someone. But it's in a limited and restricted sense. But just to recap, and then your comments, um, the idea of binding and loosing has nothing to do with binding and loosing spirits. Binding and loosing uh, things of that sort. It has to do with legislative and judicial determinations to permit something or to prohibit something and that's what paul uh that's what messiah is saying here i'm giving you the keys of the kingdom so that the door to the this new mystery form of the kingdom is going to be opened by you peter to the jews the gentiles and the samaritans we see it in acts 2 acts 8 and acts 10 And whatever judicial or legislative decision you make regarding the the mystery form of the kingdom is going to be bound in heaven. And whatever you permit will also be bound uh, in heaven. And what is permitted and bound is inscripturated for us in the epistles. And thus that is our rule of life for today, not the Mosaic law. Okay, so let me just make sure that that we're completed and we'll pick up with... Paragraph 83 next week. So there are questions. Mavel, didn't you have a, a hand up?